Twas the night before Christmas, but there was no house for Joseph as he traveled with his pregnant spouse. In a dream, the angel had told him this woman to marry. For behold, the Savior of the world was hers to carry. To Bethlehem they came by order of Emperor Caesar. He was the original Scrooge like the old miser Ebenezer. Joseph's line came from David, that great king of old. So they came to his city like the prophet Micah foretold. And now the time came for Mary to give birth to her first. So far from home, the conditions could not be worse. And as she held her sweet baby, what could be stranger than to lay him down in the animal's manger? And the shepherds were sleepy, up counting their sheep, when suddenly they were alarmed like little Bo Peep. As an angel from heaven appeared, they saw the Lord's glory. And that was the first telling of the Christmas story. Behold, these angels brought good news of great joy for every grown woman and man, every little girl and boy. There has been born a Savior, and to all who believe, peace on earth with God in heaven they will receive. And that was not the only sign. Behold, the star that bid those wise men to travel so far. They were not weary, but filled with exceeding joy. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh they gave to worship the boy. And how did Mary feel now that she had played her part? Well, the scripture says she treasured this all up in her heart. And so this Christmas, take a good look at the nativity. And thanks for your civility while I practice a little poetic creativity. But as December 25th, comes up on the calendar again. Make sure there's room in your heart for Jesus to enter in. There has been born a savior and into our darkness, he brings light. Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. We do wish you a Merry Christmas, and I invite you to open the Bible and turn with me. Let's go to Bethlehem together here in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and let's dive into the story of Jesus being born together. And uh, I did something in 2018 that I will uh, never forget. Uh, I, I decided to do this thing called Scripture of the Day where we were going to make a video for every chapter of the New Testament. Anybody been watching any of these videos? Anybody been reading through the New Testament? What was I thinking? That was a bad idea, right? 260 videos? See, this is how I got there in my mind was like, wow, I've been reading the Bible all my life. And I've been reading it. I've been praying through it. Sometimes I would write comments on the Internet with other believers about it. And I was like, what could I do to really dive deeper into it than I've been? If I made a video on every chapter, that would be the next level. And I don't think I fully grasped what that would involve. That would involve 260 videos. That's how many chapters there are in the New Testament. Now, we've made 78 of them so far, which I can't even believe we've made that many so far, right? So, I mean, no, we're not clapping about it. We've got a long way to go. We're only 30% of the way there. That's, that's what I'm saying. But it's been, a, it's been really helping me personally. I love making the videos because 
I got to have something to say about the chapter, which means I have to know it. I have to read it. I have to pray about it. I have to study it. And let me tell you this. The Word of God never disappoints. Not one time. Not one time. When you go to study a particular passage, and you're open to whatever the Spirit is going to teach you, and you're really trying to get to the original meaning of the author when he wrote it to the original audience. You're trying to get down to that level of study. Wow, the Word of God is alive. And God opens your eyes to see wonderful things. And when we started it, all the way back in Matthew 1 and 2, I was, I was frustrated when I came to these chapters because I knew everybody would see them as the Christmas chapters. But they are so much more than just what we think we've already heard and we already know as the Christmas story. What Matthew is doing here is he is making an argument as to why you should believe that Jesus is the Christ, the King of the Jews, the Son of God. And the way he's making his argument is he's building it on the Old Testament. So remember, when Matthew is writing, he can't refer to himself as the Scripture. No, he has to refer to the Old Testament. That's the only Scripture that he's got. And he's masterfully using the Old Testament to build a case that you and I should believe in Jesus. Now, we suffer from something that C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Have you heard about this before? It's we think we're smarter because we come later than everybody else, right? So we're looking back 2,000 years on Jesus being born and laid in a manger there in Bethlehem where there's no room in the inn. And even that feels like ancient history to us. And we kind of know that. We've heard that story. But actually, what we want to study tonight are the prophecies of Christmas past. Even before Jesus was born, the story was already revealed to us in the Scripture. And that's how Matthew builds his case. He's making a point with prophecy. And this is one of the things that's supposed to convince you to believe in Jesus. How do you know he's really the one, the chosen one, the anointed one from God, the Messiah, the Christ? Because God already told us what was going to happen hundreds of years before it ever happens in Bethlehem on that night. God already called his shots. And that should convince you that this baby was unlike any other. And you should worship him. And so we're going to work our way through these two chapters here of Matthew 1 and 2. And we're going to see what Matthew's doing, building the case for who Jesus is on the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Matthew starts with a genealogy, all right? Now, you can see it right here. If you've got your Bible opened, uh, it's page 807. If you've got one of our books, it's the beginning of the New Testament. It's Matthew 1. You can see it there in Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay? So, if you want to write a book, I don't know if anybody here has ever written a book before, but I would imagine if you're going to go through all the work of writing a book, you would want somebody to actually read your book. And so you would put something at the beginning that you think would draw them in, would get their attention. You'd want to lead with your best stuff. Now, that's what Matthew was doing here with this genealogy, okay? See, that just shows kind of our, our level of disconnect, that we think a genealogy, how boring. A genealogy, a bunch of list of names. No, what Matthew's saying is, hey, let's go all the way back to David. Let's go all the way back to Abraham. Can I show you how Jesus is in the line of Abraham, in the line of David? Let's just look through some of these names. Start with me in verse 2. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of 
Jacob. Maybe you even have heard that, that God is, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's even how God was known back in the beginning in Genesis. And so, yeah, this, we're going all the way back to Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And it says Abraham, yeah, he had Isaac, and Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob, he's the father of Judah and his brothers, all 12 of those boys. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And now some of these names are going to become less familiar as we keep going. But you're going to notice names like Tamar. You're going to notice Rahab, Boaz, and Ruth, Jesse. And then Jesse is the father of David the king. And then it's going to say here that David, verse 6, is the father of Solomon. Maybe you've heard of him before. And then it's going to keep going. Now, what's fascinating here, and to us, this is ancient history, and the real problem is it's ancient history that we don't really know. A lot of us are more familiar with the New Testament than we are of the Old Testament. A lot of people today aren't that familiar with the Bible at all, and, and those of us who are, we know the New Testament better than the Old Testament, but at this time that Matthew's writing, what they know, all they have is the Old Testament. And he's saying, let's go back to the beginning. Let's remember Abraham, and let's start tracing it all the way through. And you know what it's been building towards this entire time? You know what this is really all about? It's all been building to Jesus. He's the climax. He's the one we're waiting for. And so he he gives this genealogy. Go down to verse 17, where he kind of breaks it into three different sections. He says, all the generations from Abraham to David... Or 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon. That's when King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and invades Jerusalem, desecrates the temple, kidnaps Daniel, takes him back to Babylon. We're going to start studying Daniel in 2019. That's going to be our goal. That's where that happens right there. So he breaks it down into these sections, from Abraham to David, from David to when they're judged and Babylon comes in and takes him over, and then from Babylon to now, to the time of Jesus Christ. And he breaks it down into those sections. What he's trying to say, point number one, if you're taking notes, you want to get this down. God keeps his promises to people. That's what he's trying to say. God keeps his promises to people. This is a history of the faithfulness of God. So sometimes when we read Bible stories, here's what we do. We relate to the characters. We relate to the other human beings. There's going to be a lot of sermons at Christmas time about how we should be like Joseph or like Mary or like the shepherds or like the wise men. And there's definitely things that we can learn from their example. But the main character of the Christmas story is God. He is the one who is making this story happen. He's the one who's orchestrating it, directing it. And so he has been building up to this story all the way back from his promise to Abraham. And, and let's just get that down. Let's just break it down into these three sections. Let's start with the covenant to Abraham in Genesis 12. There's one you could write down. The covenant to Abraham in Genesis 12. Put that on the first line there. Because in Genesis 12, God said to Abram, that was his name at that time, that he would make of him a great nation. And that through Abram and through his descendants, through his line, all the families of the earth would be blessed. I'm going to do something with you, Abram. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And literally everybody on planet earth, all the families of earth will be blessed through your line of descendants. God said this to a man who had no kids. That's the promise he made. 
In fact, he didn't have his son uh, really with his wife, Sarah, until he was 100 years old. But God made a promise to him. And what Matthew is saying is, let's go all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abram. That through his line there would be a nation. That through that nation, everybody on earth would be blessed. Yeah, that's the promise that's being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This goes all the way back to the beginning. Let's talk about David. Let's talk about the covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7. The covenant to David, that's the second one here. In 2 Samuel 7, where God, he has a great love for David, a man after his own heart. And David wants to build him a temple, but God says, no, you're not going to build the temple. Your son will build the temple, but I'm going to build for you a house. And on your throne, I'm going to put a son of yours as the king, and your throne, your kingdom, will last forever. This is the Davidic covenant, we call it. This is a promise that God makes to his servant David, this man who really worshiped God. And he said, through you, through your son, your, your kingdom is going to last forever. Who's the king that's born in the line of David? That's what Matthew's trying to prove. The king that's born in the line of David, this promised one of old, a thousand years before he was born, God made a promise to David, and now it's come true. That's what Matthew's trying to say. And all the Jews knew about Father Abraham. All the Jews respected King David. And yeah, you know those guys? You know the promises, the covenants? Yes, they're happening now in Christ. The third one here is the new covenant. That's what God made when, when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the deportation to Babylon took place around 586 B.C. They made a new covenant, and one of the places that the new covenant is given is Jeremiah 31. See, God's having to judge his people because they wouldn't keep the law. They wouldn't do what God has said. And so he's going to have to judge them. That's why they get invaded. That's why King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and wipes them out and takes a bunch of them back to Babylon. And there's an exile where God's people don't dwell there in the land for 70 years. There's a time of exile. And at that time, there's a prophecy that God says in Jeremiah 31, hey, you know this whole problem of people not being able to keep my law? I will write my law in their hearts. You can write that down if you're taking notes. Here's the promise that God makes. I will write my law in their hearts. That's what God said. I'm going to give them a new heart that can actually keep my law. In fact, I'm going to forgive them for their sins and remember their sins no more. And so here's God. He's made promises to Abraham, to David. He's made promises about this new covenant where people are going to get this new heart. In Ezekiel 36, it says God's going to put his spirit in us, and we're going to walk in God's ways. We're finally going to have this right relationship where he's our God and we're his people. And so it's the greatest hits. That's what this is here in Matthew 1. We're starting with the greatest hits of the Old Testament. We're naming all the names that the Jews would know. They're heroes from the past. And we're saying, you know all the stories where God has walked with his people, where he's been faithful, all the promises that he's made. And I'm here to tell you that God keeps every single one of his promises, that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. That's how it begins. Now that's, you can see, that's more exciting than, oh, genealogy, right? Oh, a bunch of names. Well, okay, let's just skip down to the next part. Well, if you skip down to the next part, what you've missed is, is this whole section of the book right here. 
You're acting like this whole section of the book. And honestly, some of us, we act like this. Even those of us who come here to hear the word of God preached, who, who are growing in our love and appetite for the scripture, we, sometimes we act like this whole half of the book doesn't really matter, matter when this whole half of the book is the promises of God that built to Jesus coming. And so I want to encourage you, if, if you don't know some of these names in this genealogy, maybe you should do some work to look them up and look up. Maybe you could just even go through Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, Jeremiah 31. Try to start reading and see all these promises that God has made in the Old Testament are there now being fulfilled in Christ. This is an amazing thing that Matthew is building his case. Now pick it up with me in verse 18 where it says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, a righteous man, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So you can imagine the awkward social situation. And I don't know if you've really ever thought about this. But we've got two people who are engaged. And the betrothal at that time, it was like a binding agreement to get out of it. Even though you hadn't gone through the, the marriage and there hadn't been the wedding, you weren't really joined together as one yet. Even just to get out of the betrothal, you had to have a divorce. So this is a binding agreement. And so you, can you imagine the social awkwardness? of two young people growing up, and we think the age of Mary was very young when she was great with child by the Holy Spirit. And here they are about to get married, and then everybody can clearly see that Mary is pregnant. See, one thing we don't fully understand, we haven't maybe fully considered, is how brutal this reality was for Joseph and for Mary. I mean, everybody thought now, that they had been immoral outside of their covenant, that they had acted prematurely before they were actually married. And Joseph, righteously thinking, oh, Mary's done that. I'm gonna, I don't want to bring shame to her, but I'm going to have to get out of this. This is not a right thing for me to be a part of anymore, is what he's thinking, because he wants to do the right thing. And then it says, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Verse 20 saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here's, why, here's what the name Jesus means, that he will save his people from their sins. So you might know his name Jesus. You might hear people saying it every day in inappropriate ways. Well, here's what it means when people say that Jesus, the name Jesus, it means Savior. He came to save us from our sins. No, you're going you're gonna to marry Mary. You're going to keep her a virgin. You're going to name the son Jesus. And then verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All of this took place. How, how, why, is, why are we going through this? this terrible social situation for Joseph and Mary to have this turmoil and to have to figure out what to do. Why is a virgin great with child? Well, there's a prophecy. This is fulfilling a prophecy. And then it says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. He marries Mary, but he doesn't know her until she had given birth to a son, and he named him 
Jesus. So by Joseph going through with marrying Mary, what would everybody else think that went to their wedding where she was now pregnant? They would think, well, clearly it had been Joseph, but it had not. No, it's a fulfillment of a great prophecy that, there, that the birth of Jesus Christ, he was born of a virgin. Okay, now this is something we don't really talk about that much. One, because it's awkward because it has the word virgin in it. And, and two, because we don't think people are going to believe it. We don't think people are going to jive with this. So we kind of downplay it. I want to strongly encourage you never to downplay the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Okay? This is something that Matthew is saying. This is a reason that you should believe. This is compelling evidence. There was once a young lady who had a baby having never known a man. This is a miracle. This is God intervening in human history. This is God showing up to save the day. And this man, Jesus, well, he's more than a man. In fact, he's 100% God. He is the very glory of God. He is the image of God, and yet he was born of woman. He is a man. Jesus is unlike anyone else who has ever lived 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And the only way that that could possibly happen is through the virgin birth. So this is something we're supposed to be bold about. This is something that we're supposed to celebrate. This is an amazing thing that God has done to give us his Son, and it's to fulfill a prophecy. Not only does God want you to think here tonight about a virgin having a baby and how that means God must have sent his son in that way, but he also wants you to know that he said he was going to do this 700 years before it happened. That's when he called his shot. He was gonna, this whole situation was going to work out this way between Joseph and Mary as they came of age, as they got married. No, she was going to have a baby to begin their time together because God said so 700 years beforehand. And I need you to turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 7. So let's actually use our Bibles here tonight to get into the Old Testament. And let's look at the context of the prophecy. Maybe you know that Jesus was born of a virgin. Maybe you're familiar with that part of the story. Maybe you even know this prophecy. Maybe you even know it comes from Isaiah 7, 14. Do you know what's happening in Isaiah 7? Do you know the original context of the prophecy? What is it all about? What is the message that God is trying to give to his people about a virgin having a baby? Pick it up with me. Let's read, starting in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, page 571. If you got one of our books here, this might be a passage you've never really studied before. We're going to have to dive a little deeper into the Old Testament context, but we're going to look at two Old Testament prophets here tonight. Okay, We're going to look at Isaiah, and then later on we're going to look at Micah. Now, if you want to write down, okay, this is around 720 B.C. would be a time period that you could write down. A little over 700 years before Christ. Okay? Because the, the northern kingdom of Israel is about to be destroyed. And we know that happens. Assyria comes and, and they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. They've split up at this point. It's a nation divided. And the northern kingdom gets invaded at 722 B.C. by Assyria. And then the, the people down in Jerusalem, in Judea, the southern part, the Babylonians come in in 586 B.C. And so Isaiah and Micah, 
They're prophets at the time that the northern kingdom gets invaded, but they're writing to the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's this before the northern kingdom of Israel gets destroyed, they were allying with Syria, and they were both going to come and attack God's people down in Jerusalem. And that's what they're going to address right here. Look at it. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Joseph, Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Ahaz is the king at this time in the southern kingdom. And Rezin, the king of Syria, a whole lot of Old Testament names coming at you here. Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, they came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So you got two nations in the north, Syria and Israel, coming now against Jerusalem to destroy it. Everybody always goes up to Jerusalem because it's a city on a hill. So even though they're coming south, it says they're coming up. So here come these two nations ready to wipe Jerusalem out. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. So we know they're coming, but the war hasn't started yet. And when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, these two nations, they're coming together. (coughs) Heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, now that's a poetic way to say they were freaking out of their minds. Okay, that's... uh, that's what it means in the Hebrew there, all right? These guys lost it. We got two nations coming against us. They're coming to wipe us out. We're shaking like trees in the wind. And the Lord said to us, Isaiah, so now he's gonna, the Lord's going to give his prophet a message. Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, which is a, a, an interesting name that means a remnant shall return, that God has a future for his people. Like Jeremiah 29, 11 says. That's basically what this name means. Take your son, that means a remnant shall return. There's a future for God's people. And at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the washer's field. So you can picture a scene where the king is getting ready for battle. And what the king is trying to figure out when he's at the upper pool here is he's trying to figure out how are the people still going to have water because the enemy's going to come and siege them and surround them and cut off their supplies. So he's trying to batten down the hatches. He's trying to make sure we've got water. We're ready for this long siege. We're going to be at war. And here comes Isaiah. And he brings his son with him because his son has a very significant name. You don't name your son Shir Jashub because it rolls off the tongue. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know any last name that that just flows with, right? No, you call him that because you're trying to make a point, because you're the prophet. That's what you do. You give a message from God. You're his mouthpiece, and you're saying, hey, there's a future for the people. The remnant shall return. God has a plan for good for us. That's, the king's over here freaking out, trying to see how much water do we have, and here comes Isaiah saying, hey, I've got some good news for you. God's got a plan for us. God's got a future for us. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. You see these two uh, nations, they're like fires that are going out. Don't be afraid of these guys. Don't be afraid of the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves. He's saying, hey, don't you know their plan is to come and surround you and get you to freak out so you'll make bad decisions so they can wipe you out? Be calm. Be quiet. All right. Stop being afraid of these guys. That's what Isaiah comes to say. 
Thus says the Lord God. Here's a message from God. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Okay? Let me just tell you, these guys, here's a message from Isaiah to the king, and really it's from God through Isaiah to the king. These two guys are not going to destroy us. They're not going to defeat us. In fact, let me tell you that within 65 years, they won't even exist anymore. They're going to get wiped out. You're not the one who's about to get wiped out. They are. This is a message through the prophet from God to the king. And, and here's an encouragement for all of us. Everybody could write this down if you're taking notes. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all, okay? It's trust or bust. That would be a way you could reduce that down, all right? You either got faith and you're standing firm in your faith, or you've got nothing. Where are you at, King Ahaz? Do you have faith in the Lord and in his word? Will you believe the promise of God? Or do you have no faith and you're out here shaking around, you've got nothing to stand on, and your enemies are just going to have their way with you? Who are you? This is a chance for the king to really show that he's a man who trusts in the Lord. That's what's going on here, okay? This is the context now of the prophecy of the virgin. God is sending a message to his people, and here's what God is trying to say. I am with you. Don't worry about these guys. Don't worry about who's against you. I am for you. Believe me, stand firm. We're going to get them. Stand firm, everybody. That's what the message is. This is a super encouraging message. Man, if you had people coming against you, and then a prophet of God shows up and says, don't worry, they're going to get wiped out before we do. God's with us. I mean, you, that's, that's supposed to be like, oh, okay, yeah, whew. That was a close one there. That's how you're supposed to take this. This is good news, okay? Now, verse 10, and the Lord, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. This is how much God wants to convince the king that he's with him. He says, I'm going to give you a sign. Ask for whatever sign you want. It could be all the way down to the place of the dead. Like, hey, do you want to see a resurrection? What do you want to see? Let's go down to the place of the dead. Or it could be as high as heaven. You want to see something in the clouds? You want to see something in the stars? Like, hey, you ask for a sign. Give me a sign. What, what sign do you want to see? I'll give it to you. That's what God says here. Now, God gives signs so people will believe. Now, sometimes people demand signs because they don't believe. So if people are out demanding signs, that's not good because that means you don't really believe in God. But God sometimes gives signs so that people will believe. It's a very good thing. When God gives us a sign, we should see it and believe it and trust in the Lord. And so not only did he already say through his prophet Isaiah, you're going to win, I'm with you. Now he says, let me prove it to you. What sign do you want? It's a, it's, it's a request day here in sign department, and you can see anything you want. What would you like to see? Now, look at this. This is the epitome of the wrong answer. Verse 12, right here. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. God says, hey, I want to show you a sign. What would you like to see? Nope, I'm not going to ask. Who am I to put the Lord to the test, right? You see the, proud, the proudness here of the, of the king? See, you realize now that he's not trusting 
He's not ready to have, no, God's got his back. He wants to stand on his own two feet. He's not standing firm in his faith. No, he's like, oh, I don't need a son. I'm good. And, and uh, that was the wrong answer. That was a mistake right there. And verse 13 says, and he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You know, you just did put him to the test by not listening to what he said. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is the context. This is how much God wants his people to know that he will be with them. He's trying to tell the king. He's telling the king he can see a sign. And even when the king rejects seeing a sign, God's got something over the top, way beyond, that he's ready to do. Well, here's the sign that I want to do. A virgin is going to have a child, and here's what he's going to be. God with us. That's what the virgin birth is all about. The fact that God became a man, that God is now with us. That was the point he was trying to get to this king. God is with you. And, and if God has promised that he's going to be with you, I guarantee you that is right where he will be. Point number two, let's get it down like this. God cares to intervene in our lives. God cares to intervene in our lives. When the enemy comes against us, and I don't know what kind of, I, I would highly doubt that you're facing enemies from Syria and Israel here. Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Uh, no, who knows what kind of enemies you're facing? Spiritual foes that are assailing against you. Relationship trouble, physical trouble, financial trouble. There's all kinds of trials, and they really seem to show up this time of year in the holiday season. Hurts and tensions, all the things that can take us away from the focus, from the reality that God is with us. And he wanted to prove it. He wanted to prove it to his people once and for all. And so he wanted to do a sign as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. And he said, I'm going to do something that won't ever make sense to any human being anywhere. And the story of me doing it should be told to every human being everywhere. I'm going to have a woman who's never been with a man and she's going to give birth. And that's going to show everybody that God is with us. Call him Emmanuel. Know what it means. Don't miss the point. I am with my people. That's what Christmas is all about right there. It's an everlasting sign from heaven to earth that wherever God's people are, he is there with them. And he interjected himself, not only into this situation with his people in Isaiah 7, and you can read what happens from there and how the story goes on, and eventually it goes over to chapter 9, verse 6. If you're there in Isaiah, you want to look over at chapter 9, verse 6. This is the beginning of the story, and it's still going all the way where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Who's going to make this happen? Who's the one directing the scene here? The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies will do this. 
Hey, I don't ever want my people to doubt that I am with them as they go into times of battle, as they have times where they're tempted to be afraid, as the enemy comes against them. I want all of my people to know for all of history that I am with you. And that's what he's saying through these prophecies of his son. God is trying to encourage us. And we have to believe what he is saying. We have to take him at his word. And God wants you to know something every moment of every day. He wants you to know that he is right there with you. And do you see it? Do you believe it? Or are you shaken like a tree in the wind, standing on your own two feet? I don't need help from the Lord. I don't need to test the Lord. I'm doing just fine. Don't be an Ahaz when God wants to say, Emmanuel, God is with us. Now go back to Matthew 2, because that's just one of the examples. See, the whole story of the Old Testament is the story of God being with his people, delivering his people, wanting to have his people. But these people, over and over and over again, they will not believe God. They will not take him at his word. They do not trust that he is with them. They're afraid of the enemy. And so Matthew chapter 2 now is going to make another point with another prophecy here. And it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, let's just put a put a, a pause right there in Matthew 2 as we get going into Matthew 2. And let's just refer to Luke 2, okay? Let's just refer to Luke 2. How did Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem? Does anybody know how they ended up there? Is that where they grew up? Is that where they lived? Where, where, what was their hometown? Nazareth. Nazareth is in what part of Israel? The northern part of Israel. Bethlehem is in what part of Israel? The southern part of Israel. So how do these two young people who've just got married, and she's great with child, how do they end up so far from home? I mean, I'm sure they'd left Nazareth and gone down to Jerusalem many times, but Bethlehem is like an unknown suburb of Jerusalem. That's what it is. I mean, it's famous now that Jesus is born there, but at this time, it's like, oh yeah, that's where David grew up. Oh yeah, Bethlehem over there. Like when we go to Israel, we go over to Bethlehem. It's like on the outskirts. It's like a, it's like a suburb. That's like saying, hey, I went to Los Angeles, but really I went to Palmdale. That, that's, what, that's what it's like going to Bethlehem. Oh yeah, didn't, didn't somebody famous grow up there? I mean, that's, that's what it's like, right? Yeah, oh yeah, that's where King David was born. That's where King David grew up when he, when he was a shepherd. Oh, yeah, but that's Bethlehem. That's out of the way. Nobody's going there. How do these two young people end up in Bethlehem? Are they on a vacation? Are they, are they going on a little trip? Was it just something willy-nilly the two of them decided to do? Hey, honeymoon in Bethlehem, right? The house of bread. Let's go back and uh, talk about where David grew up. Uh, no, no, no. Here's how it happened. Caesar, some of you are saying it. Caesar. Who is Caesar? The most powerful man in the world at that moment? The emperor? The ruler of the great Roman Empire? What does he decide to do? Have everyone registered. A census. Guess what Caesar's doing in all of his pride? He's getting puffed up. He wants to count his people. How many people do I have? That's what he wants to do. 
So everybody, go to where your hometown is. Go to where your line is, where your family really comes from, the city that you were all born in. Go back to your birthplace in the line of your family and register everybody with your own tribe, with your own family group. And and I want to count everybody. I want to see who all we've got around here. See, like water is the king's heart in the hand of the Lord. God has Caesar do something so that two people end up in the city that they're supposed to be in. That's what happens. That's how they end up in Bethlehem. Maybe they'd never been there before. They know they were in the line of of David, and now they end up there because Caesar wants everybody to be registered. They go to Bethlehem. And then now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east. So one thing about the wise men is it didn't happen that same night. Like some time has gone by here. They're not with the animals around the manger here. No, now at this point, they're in some kind of house now. They've got some place now to stay where Mary maybe is recovering and they're raising up little baby Jesus here. And, and now these wise men, they're coming from the east. Okay, so they're coming from the Orient, it said. I think they're coming from Persia. I actually think that the wise men are following a prophecy that Daniel gives and that we're going to study a prophecy where you could count down until the Messiah was going to be born. And when the Messiah was born, there was a star, a sign in the sky. And the wise men followed the prophecy of Daniel and they saw the star in the sky and they came on this massive journey across the world to see the king who's been born in Bethlehem. And they're saying, Where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? Matthew wants to prove to you that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And he's saying other kings from other lands came to visit him when he was born. How does that not prove it? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They weren't just coming to acknowledge him as the king of the Jews. They were kings who wanted to humble themselves before the king of kings. And when Herod the king, who was at that time reigning over the Jews, when he heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now here's what's so sad. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote here Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, or as it's going to say in the Hebrew, Ephrathah, which means there was multiple Bethlehems, and this was the the Bethlehem in Judea, right there by Jerusalem. You are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Hey, where is this king going to be born? We've got people traveling across the world, following a star, and they want to see a king who's been born Hey, uh, do you guys know where the king's supposed to be born? Because they're following the star, but they've ended up here. Anybody know the exact spot? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we know all about it. Oh, yeah, that's Micah 5, too. Look, let's unroll the scroll. Here it is, Micah 5, too. This is what's so sad. None of those people go to see baby Jesus. I mean, Bethlehem's not far away. You could make it there in a day. I mean, you could just walk over there. And none of them go. The only people who go are the people who've traveled all the way across the world. Herod doesn't go. The chief priests and scribes don't go. They just let the wise man go. In fact, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from what time the star had appeared. When did you start seeing this star? 
And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Which really, what we know from later on in this horrific story is that he wants to kill the child. Because he's afraid that he's going to try to rise up and be a king. And he's the king. And so it's all about self-preservation with Herod. It's all about protecting the throne. And so he's going to kill the child. And, and he kills all the babies in Bethlehem up to two years old and under, which is so the star must have come somewhere around there. And so Herod's going to actually do this horrible act of bloodshed to kill all of these babies. But after listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, they saw the star again that they had seen when it rose, went before them, until it came to rest over the place. The star literally goes right above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, here's the excitement of these men traveling on this long journey. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's joy three times. That's joy to the third power. Does everybody see that right there? You're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. You cannot have more joy than that right there. That is it. That is the ultimate expression of joy. That's how excited these guys were to worship King Jesus. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, traditionally, we see three wise men because of these three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But it's possible that there were many wise men. I mean, it's hard to put a number on it. We don't have any actual clues as to how many, but it could have been much more than three of these wise men, these magi who traveled from afar to worship King Jesus. They just gave three different kinds of gifts. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So this is amazing. People know where he's going to be born. Men show up from far parts of the earth saying, where's the king who's been born? The, the people who aren't God's people are tracking the prophecies better than God's own people are tracking them. I mean, this was just an embarrassment for the Jewish people of God to not go over to Bethlehem and look and see what's going on, to let Herod go and try to kill the babies, to know what it says here in Micah chapter 5, and to not act on it. They didn't really believe it. They knew the right answer. They knew, oh, hey, we're doing a little Bible trivia here, everybody. What city was Jesus born in? Bethlehem, city of David, house of bread. Not Bethlehem in the north, Bethlehem in the south. Right answer, ding, ding, ding. Guess what? They've got the right answer with no faith. This is like so many people in church today. So many people, they'll tell you what the Christmas story is, and they really know the story. Like they can tell it to you, all the details. They know about the shepherds, the angels, the wise men. They'll tell you the whole story. They don't really believe it. They don't really trust it. It hasn't changed their life. They don't believe that Jesus really came to save them out of their sin and give them a new life of righteousness where they can know God. They believe it as ancient history, but not as powerful reality in their present day life. Oh, don't be deceived. There's a lot of us who are given the right answers about Christmas and missing the power of Jesus Christ. These people, they knew what the Bible says, but they didn't really believe it if they believed that the king would be born in Bethlehem, they would go and see, and they would have had joy in finding Jesus. Go to Micah chapter 5. Let's turn to the Old Testament. 
once again. It's not that far back from Matthew, actually. Look at Micah chapter 5. Micah's right after Jonah. Maybe you're familiar with that one. Uh, Micah chapter 5, right before Nahum. You're going to find verse 2 is on page 779 if you got one of our books. The Old Testament prophet of Micah, he was a contemporary of Isaiah. So he's writing at the time that the northern kingdom is being judged, but he's writing to the southern kingdom, and he's warning them that because of their sin, because they know about God but don't really know God, because they know what the Bible says but they don't do it, because of their sin, they are going to be judged. That's what he says. And and he has these different statements of how it's going to happen. And pick it up with me in chapter 5, verse 1, Micah 5, 1. It says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So, hey, there is going to be someone who comes to invade us. Here's a prophecy Micah's making about King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon who are going to come in and destroy them. Hey, get the troops ready. The siege is coming. Our enemy's bringing the rod. They're going to strike us on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, Ephrathah, in, in Matthew, it just says, of Judah. That's the specific Bethlehem we're talking about, okay? There's a Paris in France, and there's a Paris in Texas. You want to go to the one in France. You know what I'm talking about? Okay? That's the idea here with Bethlehem. There were multiple Bethlehems. We only maybe know about one Bethlehem. Like most people just know about the one in France, all right? No, no, this is about the one that's in Judah. That's what Ephrathah means, Bethlehem in the southern kingdom of Judah, that specific Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, this is deep on so many levels here, okay? Bethlehem means house of bread, okay? So the bread of life is going to come from the house of bread. But really, Bethlehem is where King David grew up when he was just a humble shepherd. And now the angels go to who? The shepherds. So it's almost like history is going to repeat itself, is what Micah's really saying, okay? Just like God raised up a man after his own heart, who led God's people in victory and brought the kingdom together. Remember the glory days of Israel when the kingdom was still united with King David. Well, guess what? Out of that little city of David down there in Bethlehem, there's going to come another ruler for God's people. And this ruler, his coming is from of old, from ancient days. Allah, we can throw it all the way back a thousand years to King David. We could throw it even all the way back to the eternal plan of God that he would send his son and intervene in human history and give us a savior who was born of a virgin. I mean, there's so much that's being said here. But what Micah's trying to say to the people that he's writing to is you guys... We're going to have to go back to our humble roots. We're going to have to go all the way back to the stump of Jesse because David became associated with Jerusalem because he was the king and he had a great house there. And because of him, the temple was built there and he united God's people. And everybody knows about King David and the people of Israel in Jerusalem. I mean, he really put them on the map worldwide. Well, they're going to get destroyed. 
They're gonna, the, the other nations are going to come and siege against them. They're going to get wiped out. See, if it was just a continuation of the line, the ruler would come from the capital city of Jerusalem. But because Jerusalem is going to get wiped out, no, the ruler is going to, we're going to have to do it all over again. And it's going to come from Bethlehem. That's what Micah's saying. And then he has this amazing prophecy about how this, this ruler is really going to shepherd his people and the people are going to dwell secure and their kingdom is going to spread to the ends of the earth. Like this ruler, he's really going to bring it. You thought it was good with King David. Wait till you see the glory days of Israel under this king and it's going to start all over again from Bethlehem just like it did before. Now can you imagine? The chief priests and the scribes, see they can like quote the reference, okay? They can, like, tell you, and a lot of people today, they, they can't even say, well, I know it's in the Bible. They can't even tell you where it is in the Bible, okay? Well, the chief priests and the scribes, when these wise men come in, when King Herod comes in, well, they can tell you, oh, yeah, it's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They can even quote it for you. But if they really believe the prophecy that there was going to be a rebuilding of the nation of Israel, and it was going to start when a new king was born in, Israel, in, in Bethlehem, you would think that they would be running along with the wise men to go and see the prophecy fulfilled. They would be ready for the return of all things. Hey, here comes the one who's going to lead us back to the glory days when we don't have the Romans ruling over us, when we're not divided, when we're not scattered, when we're not leaderless. No, here comes the ruler of Israel. It's happening all over again. He's being born in Bethlehem. See, if they really believed, they would be running to see Jesus, ready to worship the new king, ready to get in line and be in his army if they really believe the prophecy. See, it's hard for us to understand this because we're just looking at it from the future and thinking, oh yeah, he was born in Bethlehem. That's in the past. But do you see the great hope that Mike is trying to give to God's people? They're going to surround you. They're going to wipe you out. They're going to strike you with the rod in the cheek. We're going down, but don't worry. God's going to rebuild from Bethlehem. He's going to go all the way back to the root, to the stump of Jesse. And from of old, like the ancient days all over again, here's going to come the king to lead us. And then we're going to be secure. And then we're going to have peace. In fact, we'll be the ones reigning over everyone else when King Jesus is on the throne. That's what the prophecy is saying. It's great hope for a nation that's been defeated for hundreds of years. And they don't even believe it. And they don't even see it. And what, what we're seeing is that God controls human history. God has a plan for life, a plan for the good of his people, a plan for the glory of Jesus. But they don't really believe that. Let's get that down for point number three. God controls human history in his sovereignty. God is in control of what happens in this world. And 700 years before Jesus was born, he said where he was going to be born that the script was going to be revisited. I raised up one king that nobody believed in from Bethlehem, and now he's world famous, King David. Well, I'm going to do it again with my son. That's what God is saying in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And now people from all over the world travel to Bethlehem to go into this cave where Jesus was born, to go to the fields where the shepherds were. There's a whole business there in Bethlehem selling 
these uh, artifacts, these things that they make there to travelers from all over the world who want to go to where Jesus was born. And God said how he was going to do it 700 years before it happened. And then God had Caesar decree so that Joseph and Mary would be there when the time came for her to give birth and the prophecy was fulfilled. And Matthew's trying to get you to see, do you see what God is doing? He's in control of everything. It's all, it's like, can you connect all the dots from Abraham to David to the judgment? And now there's a virgin and she's in Bethlehem and there's a savior and he's been born. It's our king we've been waiting for. This ain't some old story. This is the hope for Israel. That's what Matthew's saying. After hundreds of years of being beaten up, exiled, and everybody else's weak neighbor that they can invade whenever they want, our king is coming. That's the message. And there were so few who believed. The only people who believed were foreigners traveling in from another land where they believed the prophecy of God's servant Daniel, this 70 weeks prophecy that led them to trace the birth of the king. How much do you really believe? I'm not talking about do you think he was born of a virgin. I'm not saying do you think that he was born in Bethlehem. I'm asking you, do you believe that God is in control of human history? Do you believe that God cares and wants to intervene in your life? Do you believe that right now, this Christmas, God is with you and he is on the throne and he reigns over your life and he is right there with you and whatever you're going through right now, you can know God. That's the promise that we have. The promise for this Christmas is God is with you. This principle, this name of Emmanuel This is a story for all of us to know. And if you really believe in Jesus Christ, you're not believing in tradition. You're not believing in 2,000-year-old history. You're believing that you have a relationship with God and He's with you right now in the name of His Son, Jesus. That's what it means to really believe. Now, anybody, whether you're Ahaz, whether you're the people that Michael was writing to, the chief priests and scribes who missed it at the time when Jesus was born, Whenever God gives a prophecy, the point is he wants you to know he has a plan for you as one of his people. And he wants you to know he is with you. Is that something you really know? Is that something you carry around with you every single day? Do you treasure it up in your heart that the whole story of Christmas is that God wants to be with me? He wants me to be one of his people. How bad does he want it? He sent his one son. Born of a woman. And he lived here among us. And God was so eager to do this. God knew this was going to be for his glory and for our good. That 700 years or so before Jesus was born, he started throwing out signs. Because this is what he wanted his people to be able to see on the big picture. That he's in control. And I can make my son born of a virgin. And I can make him born in a certain town. Because I'm God. And I'm with you. Go with me to Romans chapter 10. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. One of the ways that you and I can experience the presence of God is the power of his word. You might want to, you might want to write that down as we think about ways that God is with us. One way that you can be stirred up in your soul and that you can experience the presence of God is when we get into God's word. The word of God is living and active. And it cuts into our heart. Even the Spirit teaches us and illuminates us 
and brings to our understanding the things of God through the word. Maybe you've experienced that when you're going through the scripture of the day, or maybe you're experiencing that when you hear a sermon, or when you're with uh, maybe your fellowship group, or a brother or sister, and you're talking about the Bible. And it's more than just studying a book. It's more than just having this intellectually stimulating conversation. No, what is happening is it's like God is right there with you. As you're opening up the truth of his word, you can experience that God is in our midst. He is among us. That's what it says here in Romans chapter 10, verse 8, as it's going and talking about the message of salvation. As Paul is praying that people would be saved, that people would come to real faith in Jesus Christ, that they would come to really believe that he is God, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that the glory of God put on flesh, put on a body had blood flowing through his veins just like you and I do. And he walked among us and he was perfectly righteous among us. And then he died in our place on the cross, shedding his righteous blood and atonement for our sins, sacrificing his body to make propitiation with God. And then on the third day, he rose again to bring us into eternal life, to know God forever. That's what, that's what he really wants him to believe. And he's praying that these people, the nation of Israel, missed the point of Jesus. They didn't go and celebrate his birth. They killed him. And he's like, I pray still that they would be saved. I pray still that they could know this good news of great joy. That's for all the people, even the original people of God, the Jews, who rejected the Messiah. And he says this in verse 8. Look at Romans 10, verse 8. He says, but what does it say? What does it say? Look what he says here. This is powerful. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. No, you can experience. You know, some, you know right now. No, that's true. That's real. That's who Jesus really is. And that's what God wants. God doesn't want me to know where Jesus was born or to know that he was born of a virgin. God wants me to see that God is with me, and he wants me to be one of his people, and he wants us to be right in our relationship. And I get right with God through my faith in Jesus Christ. And I can feel that word. It's near me. It's like I can say it. It's like it's on my heart. And I need to do something while that word is right there, while I can see it clearly, I need to respond. That's what it calls us to here. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, do you really believe what the angels said? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. You're made right when you believe. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction. This isn't just for the Jew or the Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christmas is for everyone. Anyone who believes that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose again, that he is the Son of God, if you call on the name of Jesus to save you from your sin, to make you right with God, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you can feel that word, if it's near you right now, 
if it's on your mouth, if it's in your heart, you're like, yeah, wait a minute. I have never really believed that. Oh, I've known about it. Oh, I could tell you the story. Oh, I could say that, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I don't know that God's with me. I don't experience his presence. I don't live like I have a relationship with the God who controls human history, yet cares about me so much that he'll send his, his son and intervene in my story to save me from my sins. No, I don't have that kind of faith, that real faith that the Bible's looking for. Maybe tonight is the night. Maybe this Christmas is the time that you need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You know, when we celebrate Christmas, there's no better way to celebrate Jesus coming to be our Savior than people getting saved. Do you want to really celebrate Christmas? How about salvation? That would be celebration. How about actually repenting of your sin and saying no to it and saying, I don't want to do it anymore, but I don't have the power to stop. I don't have the ability to stop because I don't have that real salvation of Jesus Christ. I don't have his life. I don't really know God yet. See, when I know God, I can turn from the sin. So we got people coming to this realization all the time here at this church, and I wonder if tonight is the night for you. People who are, who are like, they hear sermons, they hear teachings, they know it's all true, and then they go home, and they keep on doing the same things that they always do, and there's a disconnect between what they know about the Bible saying and how they really live their life. And Emmanuel, the whole message of Christmas is that God is with us, and all the things that he says in the Bible are real, and they happen in our lives people are like, I don't know that. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. You experience salvation, and it's something you actually know. It's something that actually changes your life, and you become more aware that God is there, that he is with you, and you walk now right with him. You have peace here on earth with the God who is in heaven. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if, if you are a believer, if you have called on him, I want to really encourage you to practice the presence of God. So one of the ways that we experience that God is with us is through the power of his word. But we also need to, by faith, be mindful of the presence of God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Let's just look at this real quick here in Hebrews chapter 13. Turn there with me. And, and let me just encourage my brothers and sisters that the best present that you have this Christmas is the presence of God with you, okay? In fact, whether you have a lot this Christmas or whether you have a, a little, whether you have really been blessed with health and finances and family and loved ones or whether you feel like you are lacking when it comes to money, when it comes to health, when it comes to close relationships, whether you have much or where, whether you have little, here's some encouragement for all of us who believe. This is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. This is a timely word for us as we get ready to open up all kinds of presents uh, over the next few days. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's a promise of God right there. There's something you can live and know that it is true that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Your circumstances are going to try to make you feel like God is not there. The enemy is going to try to get you to doubt the care and control and love that God has in your life. 
And here is the promise. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, what was the last word of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? And I am with you when? Even to the end of the age, which is what we're living in. I want you to know, hey, you, shout out to you in the back row, Christmas 2018. 2,000 years later, after all of this has happened in the Gospel of Matthew, even you there at the end, I want you to know, I am with you always. Every single moment of every single day for the rest of your life, you cannot escape the presence of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants you to know. That's what Emmanuel means. And in fact, it says, so we can confidently say, See, now we can be the people who are standing firm in our faith. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? I'm not going to shake like some tree in the wind. I'm not going to be worried about politics or what's going on in, in my extended family or all the evils that the world is trying to throw at us with the temptations of this life. Hey, I'm not going to let all those things get to me. Let me tell you what I know. The Lord is my helper. What can happen to me if God is with me? That's the, that's the idea right there. That's the story of Christmas. Hey, how much does God love you? How much does he care about you? Well, would it impress you if he, uh, if he had his son be born of a virgin and he said he would do it 700 years beforehand? Is, is that impressive to anybody here? How about if he called where they were going to be born and then he got the most powerful man in the world to send these people who don't even live there to go back there and he rewrites the whole script on his nation of Israel? Would that impress you at all? He wants to prove to you one thing that he wants you to believe right now this Christmas. He's here. He's with us. And he has a plan for our good. We have a future. We have a hope. And we should be confident in our faith. If there's one people who should have hope at Christmas, it's Christians who believe in Jesus Christ. God has proven it time and time again. And time and time again, his people have not believed him when he's saying it in his word. Are you going to believe the promise that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? There's a promise that you can write down. That is a promise that is true for you. Well, many things in this life might leave you. Even loved ones might forsake you through no fault of their own. They might, they might die. They might get sick. They might have to move away. No, many things in this life will fail you, but I guarantee you, out of all the people who fail you in life, not one of them will be named Jesus Christ. He has proven himself faithful to you, and you should believe the word of God. We're going to take a time of communion now. It's a chance for us to have another way that we really remember Jesus Christ is we have the symbol of communion. This is an important and powerful time for us as a church. And so this is a chance for us who are believers to remember that there really was a body of Jesus and there really was the blood of Jesus and he offered those to give us life. So I'm going to have the band come forward and they're going to have a song for us to meditate on what we've just learned. I'm going to have the ushers come forward. They're going to hand out the elements. Everybody's going to get the bread and the cup 
And uh, we're going to do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. And hopefully this will drive home the point for all of us who believe that God is with us. And if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if tonight is the night that you need to call on him, this is just a reminder. This is a symbol for our church family to remember Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you know you don't have that faith, this is the moment for you to call on the name of the Lord and say, God, I need you to be with me. I need you to save me. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we could study your word together tonight. Thank you for everybody who gathered together. God, thank you for how, it, how your word is powerful how it shows us in a, in a mighty way who Jesus really is. And as we see him, God, I pray that we would have joy knowing that you are with us. I pray that we would worship you like those wise men who traveled so far. God, I pray that we would rejoice in the message of Christmas, that you're in control and that you care and that you are with us here tonight because of your son, Jesus Christ. And so God, let this be a night that we remember Jesus and encourage us. Let us be the people of faith, even here at the end of the age. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.